Lord, with your disciples, we say that you have the words of eternal life. And with your prophet, we proclaim that your word never returns to you void and always accomplishes its purpose. So, Lord, tonight, give us words of eternal life and accomplish your purposes in us. In Jesus' name, amen. When Justine and I moved into our house in Ballynur about 10 years ago, there was only one word which would describe it, and that word is bland. So, so bland. It was awful. Um, well, I suppose that depends on your taste and your perspective, but we didn't like it very much. Um, Marty used a phrase this morning in his sermon to describe the countryside around us, and he said it's 50 shades of green. This house was 50 shades of magnolia. It really was. And I've nothing against magnolia as a color. In fact, neutral colors are often good. It's kind of brightening a place up. Um, but it was every room. And it hadn't been painted in a long, long while. Uh, and it was just drab and bland. There wasn't much wrong structurally with the house. Um, but the one thing we felt it really needed was contrast. Just something to give it a bit of life. Uh, I remember the day I painted our living room and three of the walls I painted white and the fourth wall, I remember the name of the paint, it was a cheap B&Q paint, but the name was Rockin' Red. <laughs> and it was, talk about a feature wall, it caused more than one person who came into our house from the hall to go, wow, that is bright, and it really was. Um, we redecorated during COVID, um, so it's not quite so drastic anymore. We've matured. Um, but through that house, we just wanted a bit of color, a bit of contrast. And every good story has contrast, doesn't it? Rags to riches or the underdog becoming a champion, a rivalry between two contrasting sides being settled. To use a metaphor, chalk and cheese. To use a sporting analogy, it's a game of two halves which doesn't really make any sense because most games in sport have two halves, but the idea is that they're different, isn't it? Last week, Hannah was miserable. She, she so wanted a child, she longed to be a mother, but it hadn't happened for her. And to make matters worse, there was this other woman wasn't there, her husband's other wife, Penina. Can you imagine the, that family set up, rubbing her nose in it, taunting her, just making her miserable? And she really is miserable going up to the religious festivals year after year at Shiloh, not taking part, not singing praises to God, but weeping and refusing to eat. It wasn't a great reaction. We thought about that together, but that's where she was. But there was a turning point, wasn't there? Instead of insisting on getting her own way, she still asked the Lord for a child, but she did eat. She joined in the festival and she said to the Lord, serving you is more important so if you give me a child, he's yours. I'll give him over to you. And in due time, the child arrives and she calls him Samuel, which means I asked God for him. What a contrast. What a difference. Samuel has arrived and Hannah in complete obedience keeps the vow that she's made. When Samuel is weaned, she, she keeps that vow. She gives him over to the service of the Lord. And then there's this great overflowing of praise from Hannah. Uh, the scholars want to debate about whether it's a psalm or a prayer or a song or what it is. But whatever it is, it's a great outburst of praise from a heart that is so grateful. The joy of the Lord is on her lips. 
I think the whole thing could probably be summed up in the first few lines of the song. She says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. That image of the horn being lifted high, we're not 100% sure where it comes from. It might have been the ram's horn blasted before a battle. It might have been the idea of the horns on a, on a strong animal. But whatever the origin, it's a symbol of strength. Hannah is echoing the words that we find in Psalm 118, in which I read at the beginning of the service. The Lord is my strength and my song, both my joy and my strength. It'd be quite easy, though, for us to be a wee bit cynical about Hannah, I think, though. Oh, yeah, when things weren't going her way, she huffs. Now, when things are going a bit better, she sings praise. But I think to say that would maybe be just a bit too cynical and miss what's going on in Hannah's heart. Because remember, even though she is joyful and she has her son, she's about to give him away. She's going to leave him behind. So I think this part of the Bible has a lot to say to us about the joy of the Lord. Hannah's full of the joy of the Lord. So as we look at it together, um, I want to ask tonight, how do we find the joy of the Lord? How do we find the joy of the Lord? And I think there are four big ideas here that can help us to answer that question. And the first is that we find joy in the Lord by being people of our word, by obeying. Joy in the Lord is something which springs out of obedience. We see that in those verses we read at the end of chapter one. It's worth taking a moment just to explain um, the story because culturally it's, it's very far removed from us. I mean, to us, it's unimaginable to think of giving a child who's just weaned away to a priest in the temple and leaving him behind. Um, if any of you ever have children of that age and you don't want them anymore, don't show up at the manse. Don't come out to Ballinur. We don't want them. It's not, it's not an offer. But in our time and place in history, it, we, we generally wean children quite early. According to the NHS website, you should start doing this when your baby is about six months old. But in the ancient Near East where Hannah was, the normal practice was maybe only to begin at the age of two or three years. And often weaning wasn't complete until well after five years of age, sometimes even later than that. And some cultures in the world today are still like that. It's quite far removed from us, but that was the practice. So Hannah wasn't shipping off a one-year-old toddler here. Um, he might have been five or six years old. Now that still seems very young to us, um, but we also need to realize that we have records from around that time that suggest that maybe around the age of eight or nine, particularly boys, they would have left their mother's sides and gone out with the men to work. We have some records of children that young going out um, to tend sheep, for example, with the men of the family. Again, as with some of the stuff we were talking about last week, I'm not condoning it, um, but culturally it was quite normal for them. Obviously, the boys still came home at night and had a good relationship with their mothers, but there was a degree of separation from an early age. Again, not condoning it, but the girls generally spent time with the women, the boys spent time with the men. There were very definite ideas about what a woman's role was and very definite ideas about what a man's role was. And there's no school, there's no education as we know it going on at this time in history. Your school is your male relatives teaching you um, whatever their trade is or your female relatives, if that's the case. 
And for large portions of your day, the men of the family and the women were very separate and lived very separate lives. Samuel's training wasn't going to be with the men in the family. It was going to be in the temple. So when he's weaned, it makes sense that that's where he goes to train in that work. And there's even a hint in this passage. It is only a hint, but it's there that Samuel looks forward to this. Like a child excited to go off to school on their first day. The very last phrase of chapter one, it says, and he worshiped the Lord there. This, the focus of our passage tonight is that Hannah was worshiping, but Samuel was worshiping. In our culture, we might expect a child to cling to his mother's leg and scream blue murder if she tried to leave him behind somewhere like that, but it's not what happens here. It's worship, not just from Hannah in this great song, but also from Samuel. Just like another child in the family might have been told, well, look, when you grow up, you're going to go and help your big brothers on the farm or whatever it was. Samuel was told, you're going to serve the Lord. You're going to work in the temple. And so he goes and he worships. So as much as I want to realize, us to realize that it's not child cruelty, I mean, in that culture, it wouldn't have been incredibly outrageous. The authorities and the rest of the family did allow it to happen after all without protest. It's still a big sacrifice for Hannah to make though, isn't it? Even with all those qualifiers. The child isn't going off with Elkanah. Her child won't return from daily work with the rest of the man in the family at the end of the day. She's leaving her child in Shiloh. It's not even like boarding school. It's much more extreme than that. It's permanent. She'll see him once a year. And, and if you read on, you find that she brings him new priestly garments that she's made for him year after year. This was the child she had pleaded for. The child that she was essentially grieving over last week because she thought she was never going to be a mother. And now she was giving him up. She says in verse 27, I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I will give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. Hannah's joy springs out of the fact that she's a woman of her word. And she makes a big sacrifice too. In verse 24, we're told she takes, um, the NIV says a three-year-old bull, but there's a little footnote that the Hebrew actually says she brought three bulls. It's a really extravagant sacrifice. She is really joyful. She's given gladly. She keeps the vow she's made to the Lord and she doesn't go back on her word. The child belongs to God. Joy in the Lord comes from obedience trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Isn't that the old song? If the idea of giving a child up at this age is countercultural in our minds, then the idea of any joy coming from obedience is equally so. I imagine if you or I said to any of our non-Christian friends, you know the thing that gives me most joy in life? It's obeying Jesus. I think they'd look at us as if we had three heads. I really do. You What? How could you find joy in, in following narrow rules, they would say. Our society says you get more joy out of just doing your own thing, living your own truth. But actually, when you think about it, if you take a step back, the idea that you get joy out of obedience is incredibly logical. I talked earlier about us moving into that house 10 years ago. Now, if either us or the seller hadn't held up our side of the bargain, if either of us didn't fulfill our obligations according to the contract we signed when we bought that house, the whole thing would have fallen through, and rightly so. 
If we didn't pay up, as we promised to, it's quite right that they wouldn't have transferred the ownership of the house to us. If the particulars of the house weren't as they had been stated in the contract, then we would have been right not to pay. The whole thing works better when both sides abide by the rules. And it's the same in any relationship, isn't it? If the rules are broken, if confidence is betrayed, people are mistreated, then the relationship breaks down. When I got married, I made vows uh, in sickness and in health and all that. And there have been times, even in these almost 10 years, when either Justine or myself haven't been well. Last year, you know that I was off sick. And if during that time, Justine had said to me, do you know what, John, this, this is no fun and it wasn't fun. Do you know what? I, I'm all the way out of here until you get better. That would have been horrible. But one of the strengths of our relationship and of any relationship is that we stick with each other like we've promised, even when it might be a bit more convenient or pleasurable not to. Our love for each other means that not only do we do it because we vowed we would, but we actually want to do it. We want to obey. We want to do the things that we vowed that we'll do. And it's the same in our relationship with God. He disciplines us for our good. And, and when the Bible talks about discipline, it's not just correction when we get things wrong, but discipline also involves the fact of him setting the parameters in the first place. It's for our good, but it's not just for our good, it's for our joy. We have more joy in our relationship with him living his way. We say no to maybe a temporary pleasure in order to say yes to lasting joy. Hear these words. I'm going to read some words from Galatians 5, and they're worth quoting at length. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, then you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. We're called to be free, but Paul describes that freedom as crucifying the desires of the flesh, loving one another, not provoking or biting or devouring each other. Freedom in the Spirit of God comes through obedience to Christ, walking in step with the Spirit. Maybe it is a bit of a paradox that we find joy in being uh, constricted to obey the Lord. But we're saying no to the desires of the flesh, which give us this impression of freedom, but really it's a yoke of slavery to sin. 
It gives us temporary pleasure. And instead we say yes to obeying the one who can give us lasting joy. The second way I think to find joy in the Lord then is looking beyond our gifts to the giver. It's interesting as we read through this great song um, of Hannah um, that she doesn't mention Samuel. She doesn't mention the boy once. Um, Look with me again at verses uh, 1 to 3 of chapter 2. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. Do you see how personal that prayer is? My heart rejoices in the Lord in whom my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts boasts, sorry, over my enemies for I delight in your deliverance. It's very personal. And as you look at verse 3, it's hard not to think of Penina, the woman who taunted her so much. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. It's a very personal prayer. But in all those things, she doesn't mention Samuel. She uses this image of a rock instead. It's a common one in the Old Testament, probably pointing back to Exodus 17 when the Lord brought um, through Moses water out of the rock. It's interesting that the image, though, isn't that the Lord is the water. The Lord is the rock, the fortress, the the place where gifts come from. I love you more than gold or silver, only you can satisfy. You alone are the real joy giver and the apple of my eye. The joy doesn't come in the gift, it comes in the Lord. Now, obviously, it is a good thing to thank God for the gifts he gives us. And Jesus is a perfect example of this. You'll know the stories when he feeds the 5,000, he gives thanks for the boy's lunch. At the last supper, he gives thanks and then he breaks the bread. Obviously, it is good to give God thanks for the things he gives us, but it's even better not just to, not to skim over the gifts he gives us in any way, but to look beyond them to the giver of the gifts, because we find so much more joy in the Lord than in all the material blessings he gives us, good as they are. Another old song has it right, count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. It it could have been written differently, that song. It could have been count your blessings, name them one by one, and it'll surprise you just how much you have. It'll surprise you just how much better you could feel about yourself today because things are better than you thought they were when you really stopped to think about it. There's truth in that. It wouldn't have fitted to the tune. But much better to acknowledge what, what the Lord has done and see him instead. There's a bit of a marriage theme going on in this sermon. I didn't plan it at the start, but that's how it worked out. On the ring finger of my left hand is my wedding ring. Now, Justine bought it for me. It represents that we are married. And uh, I think the fact that as a culture, we put these on our fingers, so we don't tend to have wedding necklaces or earrings or uh, you know, bracelets or anything like that is because we use our hands so much. I mean, you'll know that if you've ever had your arm in a cast or anything like that, um, you'll realize just how much you depend on it, even if it's not the hand that you write with. It's a near constant reminder of the most important earthly relationship that I have. She bought it for me. I bought hers, so it's a gift from her. 
but it wouldn't mean anything to me without her. Without her, it would just be a shiny thing on my finger and it would be completely meaningless. But the person behind the gift is the one I'm thankful for, the one I find the most joy in. I find some joy in a piece of metal, but only because it reminds me of her. And we have most joy in our lives, not when we're thankful for stuff, but when we look beyond to the Lord. Um, I think it was Marty a few months back in a sermon um, mentioned that psychologists, particularly sports psychologists in particular, are beginning to tap into the power of gratitude. If it wasn't Marty, I apologize to whoever it was. You know, so if a golfer has a, a big shot to play, sports psychologists are, are encouraging them at this time to you know, think about what they're most grateful for as they're playing the shot. And apparently the science shows that that leads to much improved performance. But if we're just grateful in that kind of disconnected way, just grateful for the stuff, or grateful to the universe or, or whatever, it, it might provide a moment of better performance or a little lift of joy in the moment. But the lasting joy of the Lord is found by, by looking past those things, good as they are, to the one who is infinitely better. So we find joy in obedience, we find joy in looking beyond gifts to the giver, our great God. And then thirdly, we find joy by recognizing the sovereignty of God. Hannah has been singing this great song, and it's been personal, as I've mentioned, my God, I delight in my enemies, and so on. But then when she looks past her blessings to the giver, she turns her attention completely to him. Um, verse four and following. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry, hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. There's so many little images in there, um, but it's worth just taking a moment to appreciate the logic of what Hannah says here. First of all, she acknowledges that the Lord has lifted her up from a lowly place, that he is her rock, and she finds her joy in him. And now she turns her attention and says, well, this is just simply what the Lord does. It's who he is. It's what he's about. He's in control of everything. He breaks the shields of warriors. He feeds the hungry. He lifts the poor up from the dust. And there's this great acknowledgement that God is in control of it all. He brings death. He makes alive. He sends poverty. He sends wealth. He humbles and he exalts. The foundations of the earth are his. He's in control of it all. As I look at my own heart, um, and I mentioned this briefly last week, you know, I have to confess that this is one of the things that I find hardest to accept, that God is sovereign. You know, it's really easy to say. Uh, it's one of those phrases that we sometimes throw out. Maybe when somebody's going through a hard time, we say, you know, God is sovereign. God's got this. Just keep trusting. And it's true. Let's be clear about that. It's the clear teaching of the Bible. We're not wrong to say it. But it's easy to say. Sometimes, though, it's hard to accept. We like to be in control. I know I do. We like to think we're calling the shots. So a question for our hearts, and it might be an uncomfortable one. 
How do you feel? How do you feel and react when it seems like things are out of your control? How do you feel when something you don't want to happen is happening and you're powerless to do anything about it? If your answer to that question is that you're stressed or panicky, well then, join the club. I'm like that. It's a natural human reaction in some ways, so we shouldn't be surprised by it. But I would want to suggest that if that's how it is, we mightn't quite have grasped the fact that God is sovereign. You know, that investment that you're advised is a sure thing, a no-brainer, it could well go to pot. Your property value might plummet. A relationship that you really value might just blow up, and it might be completely the other person's doing, completely out of your control. Again, I, I would want to stress that I need to learn this as much as anybody else. But if we get that God is sovereign, then we'll find the joy of the Lord because it won't consume us. Worry about stuff won't consume us when the savings are obliterated or the job's at risk or the relationship is strained or worse. Those things might still hurt, and, and that's not a bad thing necessarily, but we'll still have a peace about it if we recognize that God is sovereign. If we can hold those things a bit more loosely and give them over to God, if we can look past those things, those gifts to the giver, not just in gratitude, but in acknowledgement that he's in control and he's sovereign over them, then we'll find more joy in the Lord. Whether Hannah would have children or not was beyond her control completely. But when she realized and she acknowledged the sovereignty of God, she had Samuel, and later on in chapter two, we read that she had several other children as well. We find joy in the Lord through obedience, by looking past the gifts of the giver, by recognizing that he's in control of everything. And then fourthly, we find joy of the Lord by having a heavenly perspective. Hannah's song ends in verses nine and 10. She says, he will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn or give strength to his anointed. Again, we, we can kind of see this progression. Hannah starts off with her own situation. Then she moves to look at the Lord and see how you know, her situation is just something that the Lord does in general. And now she looks beyond that to time and eternity when the Lord will judge all of the earth. She talks about the wicked being silenced in darkness. She talks about the Lord judging the earth. And there's a prophetic note to all of this. I mean, Hannah ends by saying, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. But at that point in history, Israel didn't have a king. But her son Samuel would anoint Saul and later David to be the king. And we know ultimately that Jesus came in the line of David. That last word in verse 10 is the Hebrew word Messiah. It just means anointed, but it's the word Messiah. Hannah says that God will give strength to his king and exalt the horn, give strength to his Messiah. Immediately that would happen through an earthly Messiah, an earthly anointed one, a king. But it's clear from what Hannah's saying here, isn't it, that she has eternity in view thundering from heaven, judging the ends of the earth. Strength is given to the eternal king, the eternally anointed one, Jesus. So 
How do we find the joy of the Lord? Well, ultimately, it's in Jesus. He is the one who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Been singing quite a lot about that tonight. So where are you at this evening? Are you discouraged tonight? Are you longing for the joy of the Lord but not quite finding it? You don't need to look any further. You can look to Jesus, find in him a joy that will never pass away. When you look at others with their lands and gold, think that Christ has promised you his wealth untold. Count your many blessings. Money cannot buy your reward in heaven, nor your home on high. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. See what God has done in Jesus as the ultimate source of joy. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we give you thanks for the many reasons we have on this earth to be joyful. Lord, we give you thanks for all that you have given us in Jesus and for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross so that we could share in the joy set before him too. And so, Lord, we find joy in obeying him. So, Lord, we gladly want to come before you tonight and submit ourselves to you. Lord, forgive us when we want to wander our own way and try and find our own joy and try and find our own pleasure when ultimate joy and satisfaction is only found in him. Lord, forgive us when we um, try to manufacture that joy for ourselves. Lord, help us to walk each day in obedience to him. Lord, help us to see not just the gifts you've given, but your goodness in giving them to us. And Lord, draw us near to the feet of Christ and help us to look always to him, looking always to Jesus in our many and varied experiences of life. Lord, help us to hold fast to him as he holds fast to us. And we pray in his name. Amen.